Let's uh, turn once again in our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, to chapter 18. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I think this is a familiar story for many of us, and I actually think that puts us at somewhat of a disadvantage um, because we know how this story goes. We know who goes home justified. Uh, we think, well, of course, the Pharisee's the bad guy, um, the one who stands opposed to Jesus, and it's the tax collector who goes home right with God. But actually, the first hearers of this parable would not have expected that at all. If the Pharisee was the good guy. He was the upstanding, moral, religious individual who lived by the Bible, a man of great respect, a, great, a man of great religious devotion. And they would have thought it's certainly the Pharisee who will go home justified. But Jesus says actually it's the other way around, and he tells us why in this story. Uh, but before we get to thinking about that, let's pray and then read our text. Father, we thank you for your living and active word, and we pray that the risen, glorified Christ would minister his word to us in the power of the Spirit today. Open our eyes to see ourselves in this passage and to see Christ in all of his grace and mercy, and we ask this for his sake, amen. Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. Hear God's word. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, Jesus taught this parable to drive home a fundamental and basic truth of the gospel. The truth is that God's mercy alone is the foundation upon which we are forgiven and accepted and declared to be justified. Nothing we could ever do, even the good works that we are enabled to do because of God's gracious works in us are part of the foundation of our right standing before God. 
the only, the sole foundation of our pardon and acceptance with God is the sheer mercy of God given and revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is driving home that important lesson by telling this story about two men who went to the temple to pray. Now, as we begin this morning, I I want us to note, first of all, the striking similarities between these two men. Because when you look at them, there are actually a a striking number of things that they have in common. Both of them go to the temple. Both of them are among the, the same gathering of God's people, the same assembly, the same church, if you like, the same worship service. Both of them engage in private acts of devotion. It's likely that this parable is set within the context of an evening service at the temple where a sacrifice would be made. And during the liturgy, during the order of service, uh, during the evening service at the temple, there was a time in which the people would be encouraged to engage in private acts of devotion. And that's likely the setting here. And both of them are engaging in private acts of devotion. And both of them are addressing the God of Israel. Both of them are seeking to pray to God. And so from an external perspective, there are these striking similarities. But when we go a little below the surface, the similarities begin to break down, don't they? And, you know, that's true in every worship service, I think. It's true in every corporate gathering of God's people underneath the similarities behind the outward acts even as we meet in the same place even as we participate in some of the same acts of devotion even as we address the same God in prayer and praise it's possible that the outward appearance is actually masking striking spiritual differences And this story exposes the dramatic difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector. And you see, the question that we need to be asking as we think about this parable that Jesus teaches is, which one of these men is right with God? Which one of them goes home justified? Now, I know you know the answer, but slow down and let's appreciate the punch of this parable, the sting in the tail. And I think to get there, we need to begin by taking a closer look at both of these individuals. So let's begin by taking a closer look at the Pharisee. The Pharisee was a religious and moral man who thanked God for who and what he was. He was was a respectable, moral individual in his time. He was considered to be a layman leader among the people of Israel. He was a part of a back-to-God movement that had been going on in Israel for hundreds of years. He was, if you like, the equivalent of a godly elder in the church. And we see a number of notable characteristics here. I mean, think about it. This is 
This is the kind of man that you want as your next door neighbor, isn't it? Um, He deals honorably with others. He's faithful to his wife. He's a just man. He does what is right. And, And so he's an upstanding man in the community, an honorable man, someone people looked up to and respected. And notice, too, how he took the word of God really seriously. And one example of that is um, seen in his devotion and the discipline of fasting. You know, the Old Testament required people to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. But this man went above and beyond that and fasted not just once a year, but twice a week. And then there's his extraordinary giving. He, he gives a, a tithe from all of his possessions, all that he has. And once again, he's going above and beyond what the law required because the law only required the people of Israel to, to tithe from certain kinds of produce, from certain kinds of income that they received. But he, he gave out of everything that he had. It's, it's an amazing, it's an astounding thing when you think about it. Just think about what would happen to church budgets if churches were filled with people like this. You know, missions, give, giving to missions would double and triple or quadruple or quintuple or something along those lines. And so you need to, you need to appreciate this, that this is a, this is, we need to give him the benefit of the doubt here. This is a man of character and he is a man of exceptional religious devotion. And we need to take that seriously because he takes himself and his religion very seriously. So just imagine for a moment that someone like this uh, was seeking to, to join Trinity Presbyterian Church. Came along and said, I want to become a member at Trinity. You know the process. He would, he would have a meeting with the session of elders and the, the elders would, would seek to ask discerning questions. They wouldn't just say, oh, well, you've, you've grown up in the church. You, you read your Bible. Great, well, and good. We're done here. Welcome. And they'd, ask, they'd ask questions like, how, how, is, how is your life different because of God's grace? Does, does your faith really make a difference? And he could say, I, I thank God my, my life is different. Okay, well, is there any prevailing sin in your life that we need to know about. I thank God I've been kept from open sin. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not, a, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not an unjust man. Well, uh, how about personal devotion? Tell us about some of your spiritual disciplines. Well, I, I study Torah day and night. Uh, I fast twice a week. Okay, well, one of our membership questions is, do you promise to support the work and the worship of the church? Do you think you can do that with the Lord's help? Well, yes, I, I actually attend worship at the temple morning and evening. And I give a tithe from everything I get. It sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It sounds like a fast track to, to membership. So forget for a moment how we often think about Pharisees. 
because I think it hinders us from actually appreciating the point of this parable. Here's a religious and moral man who thanks God for who and what he is. He's, he's a man who's highly respected, deeply religious, committedly conservative theologically. He's not like those liberal Sadducees. And his religious devotion is really something to behold. And so is this the man who is right with God? Is this the man who goes home justified? Well, let's leave him aside for a moment and think about the tax collector. Once again, I think we've got a little bit of work to do to understand this parable because the way that we think about tax collectors in our society is not the way that people in Israel thought about tax collectors in their society. Tax collectors in Jesus' day were employees of the occupying government of Rome. Uh, you know, Israel at this point is a conquered people living under the, the boot of the Roman Empire. And Rome collected taxes among its subjects. And the way that they did it is they hired out people from within that community. And so these people would make bids and say, this is how much I will collect for Rome. And, you know, of course, what, what would the Roman government do? They would give the job to the highest bidder, the one who said they'd get the most money. And then there were virtually no regulations or laws saying how much a tax collector was allowed to collect. And so tax collectors during this time were notorious for being extortioners, thieves, who would not only collect what they were required to collect for Rome, but they would fill their own pockets by collecting extra. So there's, a, there's an atmosphere in this passage that we, we need to try to feel ourselves to appreciate the punch of this parable. Let me try to help us here. I um, haven't watched this series, but I know the basic storyline, so I'm going to try to use it without butchering it. Some of you have maybe heard or watched the show The Man in the High Castle. And it's, uh, it's based on an alternate history following World War II where the Axis powers have, have won the war. And the eastern side of the United States is ruled and governed by Nazi Reich. Now, I want you to imagine yourself living in that context for a moment. And of course, the Nazi government would be collecting taxes from its subjects. Well, how are they going to do that? Let's say they do what Rome did. And they hire out people from within your own neighborhood to serve as tax collectors, and the job goes to the highest bidder, and no laws are put in place to regulate how those tax collectors are going to be controlled. And so suddenly you find these tax collectors becoming wealthy and moving up the economic ladder while you live in poverty. And this is, you know, this is Joe Smith that you went to high school with. He was, a, he was a part of your graduating class. Maybe you worked together in high school. Now he's not only collecting money for the enemy, but he's stealing from you and, 
the money that you need for your life and for your family's livelihood, he's getting rich off of. How would you feel about that individual? That's what's going on here. That's how people would have viewed a tax collector like this man. This is not an IRS employee just fulfilling his duty. You know, we understand that being a tax collector is a perfectly honorable profession. We might not like the tax rates that we have to pay at times, but we intuitively understand that it's not the tax collector that we have a, a problem with. He's, he's simply carrying out his job and fulfilling his duty to the government. But this man is not an IRS employee. He's a traitor and a cheat. He's an extortioner. And I, I think it's safe to say he's undoubtedly a wealthy tax collector. Now, why do I say that? Because he's a tax collector in Jerusalem. This is where the Fortune 500 tax collectors lived. Because in Jerusalem, you could enjoy the best of life, and he could afford it because he was stealing it from, from others. So he's enormously wealthy, gained that wealth by preying on his own people working for a foreign power. But here he is, and in this parable, he's gone to church. You know, I, I, I suspect that um, someone in his shoes would have no idea why he's on his way to the temple. But he's all, and he's altogether out of place when he makes it there. And can you imagine, first of all, the stares that he would have been getting? What, what is he doing here? And then during the, the, the worship service, he's all out of sorts. Jesus tells us that he, he, couldn't, he wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven when he prayed. Now that doesn't sound like a big deal to us because we have this cultural custom of you know, every head bowed and every eye closed. I actually suspect that that practice among Christians is rooted in this passage, but I have no proof for that. But what was, what was the common posture of prayer in the Old Testament? There are different postures, but the common posture of prayer was hands held out, eyes lifted to heaven, and eyes open while you pray. So you have, you have a crowd of people engaged in private acts of devotion, and here you have this tax collector with his head bowed down, and he's beating his chest. That is something that ancient Near Eastern men just didn't do. Except in the most extreme circumstances of lamentation and penitence. So he's all out of sorts. And he's a traitor and a cheat. And we come back to the question, which of these men is right with God? Which one went home justified? Let me give you several reasons why it couldn't be the tax collector. The first is he's an extortioner. He has used his authority to abuse others and take their money. He's unjust. He's taken what he did not have a right to take. Uh, and like so many rich men, Sadly, he's probably had the wealth to be an adulterer and get away with it. Now, where am I getting that from? I'm, actually, I'm getting that from the Pharisee's prayer, which the way in which Jesus tells this parable, it's almost certain 
that the prayer of the Pharisee is describing the character of the tax collector. And instead of fasting, he's likely getting fat on his own wealth. And when he's in the temple, he, he really is, if I can put it this way, a complete disgrace. For, for a man to enter the temple, not even lift his eyes up to heaven, beat his chest while he's praying. And this is probably the first time he stepped foot in the temple for some time. So you see, on the basis of externals, it is almost certainly not this man who went home justified. And if those are some reasons why it wasn't the tax collector, let me give you some reasons why it almost certainly is the Pharisee. Because he's a man of prayer. Prayer is actually a pattern of this man's life. And he knows how to pray. He has a lot to say to God when he's praying. And he, he thanks God for who he is. He is a there but by the grace of God go I individual. And he lives a disciplined life. Temple prayer, temple worship, morning and evening was a rhythmic part of his life. He tithed meticulously. And he really did live a different life. His beliefs actually mattered to him. Isn't that something that we long to see among the people of God in, in every age? That, that, that God's word really makes a difference? That God's grace really makes people different? Isn't it one of the things that we lament that the statistics tell us? That professing Christians are actually very like the world today and not very different at all. But this man was different. Here's a man who stood out and in comparison to the tax collector, he's living a much more honorable life. He doesn't extort people. He doesn't deal unjustly. He doesn't cheat on his wife. If one of these men is right with God, I'd put my money on this guy. So why does Jesus say it was the tax collector who went home justified? And I think there's one more thing in this parable that we are prone to miss that Jesus' first listeners would not have missed out on. And it's because they had been there. They had been to the temple. They, they knew the order of service. They knew the liturgy. They, they knew the precise point of the service in which Jesus sets this parable. So let's put a pause on this passage for a moment and just engage our imaginations for a second and try to envision the context that Jesus is setting for us here. Again, it's likely Jesus' parable is set during the evening, or we might call the afternoon service at the temple. A lamb has, has already been selected and and the lamb has been, has been washed to ensure that it was a lamb without blemish or spot in order to be a suitable sacrifice, a substitute for the sins of God's people. And then having been inspected and washed, the lamb was taken to the, the sacrificial altar where it was bound. And, and then the lamb was slain and the blood of the lamb was care, carefully gathered and then and then sprinkled. And the lamb's sacrificial blood was sprinkled symbolically to, to show God's people visually that the need for a substitutionary sacrifice. And then the lamb would, would have been flayed and carried up and offered as a burnt offering. 
And with all the other parts of the liturgy, the people have stood there and, and they've watched this unfold before their eyes. Can you imagine witnessing that? The sheer realism of it all. I uh, appreciate the pictures that we, many of us have in study Bibles. You know, you've got study Bibles of, with pictures of the temple and the priests and their garments and the altar of sacrifice. And it's nice and clean and tidy. No blood. But actually, that, that wouldn't have been at all what it looked like. This was a bloody, gory mess. So you imagine the cry of the lamb. The blood of the lamb being poured out. Blood dried upon the altar as the fire burned day and night. And the people have been standing there during this service. And, and they've, they've witnessed all of this. And now their hands are held out. And this is the point at which the people are encouraged to engage in private acts of devotion. So that's the context. And the giveaway is what comes out of their mouths. The Pharisee thanks God for his grace in a sense. God, I thank you. He, he believed in some sense that he was a debtor to grace. The only problem is that his understanding of grace was actually a disgrace to grace. And you get, a, you get a feel for that by what he says. I mean, how many eyes can somebody squeeze into a short prayer? I, 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 I. And the verbs that he uses are all active verbs. I am not like. I fast. I tithe. And you see the striking contrast of that to what he has just witnessed. An animal has just been sacrificed before him as a picture of the need for forgiveness and cleansing of a substitute, and here he is talking about himself and his religious accomplishments. He's missed the whole point of the ceremony. And you look at his prayer, there's, there's no recognition for the need for mercy, for forgiveness, for, for real gospel grace. There's no cry for a savior. He actually has a religion where he doesn't really believe he needs saving because God has given him the grace of help to enable him to do what's necessary to save himself, to justify himself by his own deeds. So he never asks for mercy. He never recognizes he's a sinner. He never asks to be forgiven and accepted by the sheer mercy of God. And then there's the tax collector Again, the chosen lamb has been slain. Its blood has been sprinkled. And he comes with bowed head, beating his chest after seeing that, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Actually, what he says is more striking than that. He, he, he literally says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He's not looking around to see if he's better than anyone else. He's not trying to make a list of his religious and moral accomplishments to say, God, look at these things. I, I stand justified before you. He's not looking to the person beside him saying, well, I'm better than that person, so I must be okay. You see, he's not basing his acceptance with God on anything he has done. He's beating his chest, acknowledging himself to be a sinner, 
and trusting himself into the hands of a merciful God. And one more neat thing here, the word for mercy. Some of us, was it two or three weeks ago, we looked at the story in Sunday school of blind Bartimaeus who asked Jesus for mercy. But the word that Bartimaeus used is different than the word the tax collector used here in this parable. Bartimaeus was asking Jesus for the mercy of relief from his blindness. But, but literally, the, the tax collector says, God, be propitiated to me. Now, propitiation is not a word we use a lot, but it's a New Testament word. It's a gospel word. And here in this passage, it, it means a, a substitutionary sacrifice that would satisfy the wrath of God against my sin. And that's what, the, that's what the tax collector is crying out for. That God would be propitious towards him. And that was the whole point, you see, of the sacrificial ritual. Which happened every day in the temple. It reminded people that, that no one can bear their own sin before God and, and live. And it showed them beyond that. That God was in his mercy willing and able to provide a substitutionary sacrifice that would bear his wrath against his people's sins. That his judgment would be outpoured on a perfect, spotless lamb. You see, it pictured that there is forgiveness with God through a suitable sacrifice. And if God's wrath was satisfied through the outpouring of his judgment on a substitute, then the true worshiper could be, could be set free from the, the fear of God's wrath, the fear of condemnation, could be set free from that guilty conscience that has arisen throughout your life to condemn you and those memories that have come to your mind of all the ways that you failed God and failed others. But another thing we need to say is, of course, and I, I think the tax collector understood this. This lamb that was sacrificed in this parable was by no means an adequate sacrifice to take away his sins. How could a lamb be a sufficient sacrifice for the sins of a man? How could a lamb make atonement for the sins of a human being. And so he sees the sign. He sees the sacrificial rite. And he sees beyond the mere symbolism of it. To the reality that he is a sinner. That his sin needs to be dealt with. And that God is providing a substitute. And so he cries out to God. God be propitiated to me. By giving me a suitable sacrifice. And just think about this story in the context of Luke's gospel. You wouldn't believe it if I told you we're nearing the end of Luke's gospel, but we are. Think about, think about what Luke is doing here. I think it's amazing because this story is not in isolation. We shouldn't view this story in isolation. because Just a, just a few weeks later, this Jesus will be in Jerusalem. This Jesus who three years before was identified by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And just a few weeks later from this point, he will be in Jerusalem 
at this very hour during the evening sacrifice. And just before that, he will have been inspected and examined. In the last hours of Jesus' life, he was examined and examined and examined. And yes, he was condemned by unjust men, but you notice that throughout the Gospels, there's always that voice that is declaring Jesus' complete innocence. He's the spotless lamb who is then led to the altar of Calvary to be the propitiating sacrifice for the sins of his people. And I think it's striking too when you realize that it's Jesus teaching this parable. It's the Lamb of God who is telling us this story about how God is going to provide a sufficient substitute so that God's wrath against our sin could be satisfied. It's Jesus himself who is saying, God's going to do that. And and a few weeks later, he will be the one to make it a reality. He will be the one to bear the wrath of God. That means Christ would pay this man's debt. Christ himself would be his propitiating sacrifice. And again, come back to the question then. So which of these two men were forgiven and accepted by God? Which one went home justified? And the answer is this. The one who knew that he was a helpless sinner. The one who knew that if he stood in pride before the Lord with his sin, he could not live. But was by the grace of God humbled to the dust and cried out, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That man went home justified. And now I think this story, as we, as we wrap up here, I think there's one more question that this parable is meant to bring to our minds. And the question, not just which one went home justified, but the question is, which one am I? Am I, am I like the Pharisee trusting in some way in myself? in my status, in my performance, in my religious heritage, in my membership in the church, in my performance or or whatever? Am I in some way trusting in myself that God will accept me for who I am? Or am I like this tax collector who has been brought to the point where he he realizes I, I have nothing Nothing to commend myself to God. And the only thing I deserve from God according to his justice is his judgment. Are you a church member frequently saying things like, there but by the grace of God go I, but at a, at a deeper level, perhaps you are even self-deceived by, about this, but at a deeper level, you actually believe that while God's grace got you going, you're the one who's going to justify yourself. The idea of a bloody sacrifice, a substitute, shed blood, wrath poured out upon the Son of God is no part of how you think about how you can relate to God. 
Or is there this deep heart cry where, you know, I think in this moment, this tax collector had just forgotten altogether about his surroundings. And as it, it was as if he was standing alone in the presence of God and he humbled himself to the dust and he pounded his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the question Jesus wants us to ask ourselves, dear friends, today. Which one am I? Am I like the Pharisee or am I like the tax collector? Do I trust in myself or have I entrusted myself into the hands of a merciful God? You see, Jesus is teaching us the gospel here in a, in a parable. And what a wonderful parable it is. A Christ, propitiation, a substitute, a sufficient sacrifice for our sins, freedom from condemnation, the grace of justification by faith alone, apart from works. It's all there and it is all freely offered to everyone. If they will but humble themselves before the Lord and cry out to him for mercy. And so I want to do a little bit of pastoral pleading with you today as I end. And I just want to say, I beg you in Jesus' name, do not go home today without sincerely asking yourself this question. And maybe before that, ask the Lord to not allow you to deceive yourself, to undeceive yourself. Which one am I? Am I trusting in myself or am I trusting in Christ? If you're trusting in Christ, it's all yours. Forgiveness. Righteousness before God because the very righteousness of Christ is given to you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for the way your word speaks right to our hearts. Thank you that, while from our perspective, we are the ones who brought ourselves here, that in actual fact, you've brought us here. And you were seeking us out. And today you have spoken your word to us this afternoon. And we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open to receive it in faith. Give us the grace of humility. Rid us of hearts of pride that would lead us to think that we can stand in and of ourselves. Bring us to be like this tax collector, not just once, but each and every day, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.